0: and welcome to our FNVA podcast, Voices of Young Tibetans. The People's Republic of China under the Communist Party of China will be celebrating its 73rd founding anniversary in the coming days. Their founding in the year of 1949 ushered joy, freedom, and several other humane expressions. But it also simultaneously kickstarted the occupation of Tibet and Beijing's expansionist Drive, which is happening at an accelerated pace nowadays. The 20th National People's Congress is set to take place from 16 October this year, and it is speculated, or is known, I should rather say, that during this legislative session the unprecedented announcement of Xi Jinping as president for the third term is in line. So under such burbling political climate in China, we try to unravel and bring clarity on it with our guest today. Without any further ado, I would now like to welcome our guest. We share a common interest in Pokemon and met for the first time during our days at TCV Saluki in Derudan. He's a political individual more so than others I know. He has engaged with Chinese students in the United Kingdom and the US and also interned at the office of Tibet in Washington, D.C. Welcome to our podcast, Leila. Thank you so much, Damdila, for your
1: kind introduction. Yes, my life has been eventful up till now. I did my primary schooling in Upper TCV, then I moved to TCV Selkie where I met you, and then I got the good opportunity to study in Wales back in 2014, and then I went to the United States to pursue uh, political science in
0: 2016. Okay, Chilila, so you shared a bit about your lives, but I would also like to probe a bit more and like... Can you share to our audience about any lessons, views, or even experiences that you want to highlight being in exile on and also a Tibetan refugee?
1: Personally, uh, I don't feel that good to introduce myself as a refugee, but it is what it is. I mean, uh, you're basically a tenant in someone else's home. So if, if the tenant who's kind enough, like India, uh, Ask us to leave, then we have no option but to leave. I don't think it'll happen, but it's just it is like it is like that. So uh, but when you look into the population right now, we have so much to hope for. Like uh, we have a, we have a good population who who has high literacy rate, who has um, who has good knowledge about our relationship with India, our relationship with China. So I think in this generation we could make. A serious push towards the goals that we have set like uh middle, the middle way policy or even freedom itself it's just we need to remain sanguine like we need to hope for the good things but
0: but also remain realistic the things that you shared with us it's very pertinent but the thing that i would like to ask you and probe you deeper is like how you travel abroad, right? You've been to Wales, you've been to United Kingdom, you've been to America, but like being a Tibetan refugee, like we have this identity certificate, right? The yellow color book. So did yes. you face any problems when you were traveling abroad? Cause like from people's incidents, from people's narratives, I've heard how Tibetans have to go through an extra layer of security. I'm not sure, I haven't felt that, but you can throw more light on that, so till
1: so the thing with the identity certificate is that it looks peculiar. It's yellow and uh, the rest of the uh, the passport for Indians looks like blue. So um, even in Indian airports, you get stopped. Uh, they ask you what it is and uh, it'll take extra time. But um, one incident that has stuck with me for my life has been like uh, when I was in, uh, when, when I first came to UK, I didn't know like the, the, I didn't know the identity certificate was something special. Like it was, um, I thought that um, I thought that every every people from India, like who are born in India, gets this. So when I went to the United Kingdom, um, I so the immigration desk stops me, and then they ask me what it is, and then it took me about like fifteen. It took them about like fifteen or thirty minutes to to see and to, to approve me. So it was quite. Embarrassing for me sometimes because um, I had friends waiting for me outside who were waiting for the bus, but um, It gives you the realization that uh, that you're a refugee so It's good in some cases because it does make you realize that you need to work Something about that. You need to do something about it. And I hope I will do that in the future
0: (laughs) Yeah, definitely like I believe we Tibetans go through that a lot like the experience of refugee being in exile is something all of us who are in India and who are even abroad feel that from time to time. So yes, particularly yes. So, so as a refugee, like because in India we
1: live in like such a cocoon place. Like every one of us is a Tibetan, so you don't feel that much. You don't feel that much of a. Uh, you, you don't feel that much special. But when you are abroad, like let's say in a school, and you're the only Tibetan, you feel, you feel, you feel something else. Like you feel like you need to do something about it because everyone else has, like everyone else has a land. Everyone else has, everyone else has, has the right to go back to their own land. I don't, and uh, it, it is sad. But yes, it gives you the hope to do something good. Like I hope that's what everyone feels
0: definitely like you said yourself like how you were the only one and i had this experience when i was in hindu college delhi university like i was the only tibetan in class and there was a topic about tibet and it so came yeah. to a situation how i had to defend tibet to an extent and it quite it got quite you know intense to an extent but that is what it means to be a tibetan right now you know like you have to create your own niche create the space for engagement so very interesting, like being a refugee, though it has its own limitation, but there are certain especially being a Tibetan under the guidance of His Holiness, the 14 Dalai Lama. True, true, I agree.
1: Because um, back, in, um, back, in my, uh, back in my high school in Wales, uh, we had like uh, the model United Nations. So, um, you know, my senior, uh, who was actually a Tibetan, was very skilled. And she actually put Tibet as a nation That you can, uh, as a nation in the United, as the nation in the model United Nations. So when I was, when I was in my second year, I had to defend the inclusion of it. And uh, it was quite hard because, I mean, I mean, de facto, like before 2000, like before the 19, like 1947 or something, de facto, we might be independent. But de jure, I mean, it's a different story because China has already claimed a lot of land, a lot of the land that Tibet historically claims. So, I mean, it's a fine rope that you walk into. Like, you need to n- navigate all those spaces and then see, like, how you can, like, convince those people. Uh, it was quite hard. So, yeah, uh, that was my experience.
0: Definitely. So now, like, I think we should now go into the subject a bit. Um, <coughs> I would like to ask you whether you can give us a brief elaboration on the governmental structure of the People's Republic of China when the Communist Party of China is at the center.
1: Yes. So uh, to elaborate more about the structure of the government in China, uh, it's pretty hard because it's arcane. Like, not everyone knows about it. And I think, like... uh, It's so different from other structures like um, India or the United States that we know so much of. Um, And as you said, the the structure of the Chinese government is synonymous with the party itself, which is the Communist Party. And I think that's because uh, the party wants to preserve the monopoly that it has over the system and uh, and the nation itself. there are no so there are no co-equal branches of government in china so um uh it's because power has been so centered centralized i mean centralized into like uh centralized so much so that you can generally put like you can generally point at the Politburo members and they control all of the government but uh but if we have to take a look into the system i think the, the the four facets, I think, of the um, the four facets of the government that I would like to generally like uh, uh, describe more about would be the State Council, the the military commission, uh, and the CP the CPPCC, which is the Chinese People's uh, Political Consultative Conference. Um, and uh, the State Council is where the ministries and all the uh, functionaries. Um, are uh, based at. It's headed by the premier. The PLA is the military commission, and also it has the powerful police, uh, which is headed by the uh, the president, which is the general secretary of the Communist Party, and also the CPPCC, the CPPCC, which is quite a <laughs> gamut, uh, the Chinese People Political Consultative Conference, which is um, um, which is a body separate to the state because um, it's like uh, <coughs> it's like when the party and the state both consult with the PPCC on policy issues. So they consult them and the, PPPC, the PPCC then uh, consults the NPC, which is the National People's Congress about the legislations. And uh, now we talk about the, now we can talk more about the NPC, which is the final. The final facet of the government that I that I generally put. The, the NPC, which is the National People's Congress, oversees the State Council, also the Presidency, the Supreme People's Court, the Public Prosecutor's Office, and the military. So in practice, the NPC, like People's Congresses at every mm, level of administration, like small NPCs, is controlled by the Communist Party. And uh, so they are so therefore they are likely to be uh, exercising little oversight of any other institution so uh, they are generally like uh, they are expected to approve all the budgets, they are generally expected to approve all the agency reports also like approve personal appointments and legislation so it's basically like a puppet in itself of the party
0: So yeah Chile, you definitely <clears throat> made it clear about the Structure, governmental structure of how the People's Republic of China is. And, you know, like we Tibetans, not only Tibetans, most of the people, to an extent, like we tend to associate a government with those three pillars or maybe four pillars of democracy. So, but hearing about the structure, a very different structure about China was fascinating. And I think even our audience can learn a bit from here. And you stressed upon the National People's Congress, right? It is the legislative side of the government. And people commonly call the current National People's Congress of China as a rubber stamp. But like right now, we have the 20th NPC coming up, right? So can you yes. elaborate and share with us its significance and its relevance? So by visual uh, by the visual of
1: it, so that so the 20th National NPC, which is the National Party Conference, I think National Party Congress. National. Sometimes they call it like the National People's Congress oh, of the people. Communist Party. Yeah, National People's Congress of the Communist Party. Uh, so the, by the visual of it, um, like when you take a look, when you when you look into the conferences, um, then NPC, the NPC, the NPC, the 20th NPC would have the center like of the would have the communist um, emblem, which is the sickle and the hammer, in the center of it. And then when you look into the uh, the rubber stamp which is the national people's congress they would have the emblem of the Chinese the, the PRC which is the People's Republic of China. So uh, that's the that's the difference in appearances. Um in in actual sense, uh the the NPC, which is the um which is by which I mean the NPC of the Communist Party, what they do is that they elect the general secretary, they elect the Politburo, and they also elect the people who will go into the National People's Congress, uh, National People's Congress, which is the PRC, which is the rubber stamp, uh, and what? Uh, so they 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 hold all the power, and um, by all the power I mean the people that they elect, and it has already been like decided. Like so, it's not even like a. I don't think like there would be like any major surprises. I think Xi Jinping would get the unprecedented third term. I think the I think some piece, some members of the Politburo would retire, and then people for uh, like people from the next generation would come up and take some basis of it. But then, um, if you look into the but then if you look into the nitty gritty of it, um, now we have to look into the Xi Jinping thought. How would Xi Jinping thought be implemented into the constitution? So those are the things that um that we need to look forward as uh, political scientists and research more regarding this
0: definitely Thiele. and one thing that you really pointed out an interesting thing was how there's going to be a you know a generational shift of leadership as far as i know like in the politburo <laughs> of the standing committee they have a certain age limit so with that there is a generational shift that is going to occur so do you think that such a shift in leadership will have an impact on the attitude of china towards its occupied nations of tibet east turkistan southern mongolia etc
1: well unfortunately i don't think there would be uh like a like a huge shift in like policy or something like that and in, in any kind of leadership change not even like the next generation because because the Chinese Communist Party wets their candidates very properly. Like they would they would check all the records and see like, if they have any kind of like blemishes, like let's say corruption or even dissent. So people who are promoted like upwards, they don't have any kind of like corruption cases or even like dissent. Like they don't they don't usually talk back regarding the government's policy or something like that. So when we talk about the next generation of Chinese leaders within the Communist Party, I don't see like, I don't see much hope in like, uh, I don't I don't place much hope in those leaders uh, as far as um, policy regarding Tibet or, uh, or East Turkestan or like the minorities are concerned. But the interesting thing to look forward is that um, I think one of the premier candidates for the, uh, for the premier of People's Republic of China would be a candidate from uh, candidate who has, who knows Tibetan really well, like the Tibetan language really well, and also has been working in Tibet under Hu Jintao. So, um, would be interesting to see what he does if he is ever being appointed to the premier's position.
0: Definitely, Thilia. But one thing that I'm really worried about is how you know this genera- this generational shift is occurring. To an extent that the leaders currently who are going to take the patent of leadership are Chinese born after the Cultural Revolution, you know, like Chinese born before that and even before they got, they were founded, like in 1949, they had to experience their struggle. They know what's, you know, what's right or wrong to an extent. So having leaders not experience that and, you know, like making them rule the CCP, would that not have an impact? That's what I believe. I mean, you have your own thoughts, though. uh, Yes,
1: but I generally disagree on that fact because, uh, because what the Chinese government stresses is stability. So, um, if there is like a generational shift into leadership or something, it creates instability. Like, let's be, let's. That's a fact because um, you know, when you're looking into stability, like a policy shouldn't change that much so that uh, we have to like make like. We have to make like real changes into it. So um, through the lenses of stability, I don't think um, I don't think the I don't think any kind of generational shift within the within the leadership of the Communist Party would make such changes. Um, it's because that we Tibetans place a lot a lot of hope. Let's say like um, during the uh, Seventeen People's Congress, uh, my dad said uh, that uh, we placed a lot of hope on Xi Jinping, who was then appointed the vice president. Uh, we said that uh, he had a great connection. His father had a great connection with the Panchen Lama. Um, that uh, that he knows the struggle of being like left out of the Communist Party because he joined the Communist Party really late, and then he placed a lot of hope in it. And uh, when you look back now, when now we have come like 15 years later, I mean, uh, the situation has deteriorated, hasn't it? And now look into the zero code policy that Xi Jinping follows like rigorously, like um, I mean I see little to no hope in the next generation because I think I think they would carry on the same.
0: Definitely. But, but what do you think? But what do you think? I think there would be a. Certain level of change because we have seen this since, you know, Xi Jinping has come to power since 2013 and more recently with the 7th Tibet World (coughs) Forum that was, you know, held at 2020. And since then we've seen the level of escalation at the border occurring with India and also the repressive policies carried out in Tibet. It's been like manpool increase, like not what it used to be. It's like increasing, increasing, you know. It's increasing to such an extent that you know, it's, people don't take notice of it. I think that's the problem. Because recently we have heard this case of how DNAs of Tibetans are being collected. It was not collected this year. It was not collected last year. It has been collected since two thousand sixteen and many years back. So you can see how you know China has been doing very violative things. I must say, and, you know, like you, to an extent you you sort of said that your father placed a bet on Xi Jinping about how he might bring change but I don't know you also seem to be in a certain way of placing a bet to the current premier who you say was an underling of Hu Jintao and he might you know but we never know we we Tibetans can do that we can not place hope I know yeah
1: because we are Tibetans I mean it's the only thing that we have is hope I mean uh, but I don't I, but, but but as I said I don't have much hope on who to, uh, the 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 perspective for me but but I'm, I'm I'm interested to see like what he does like I'm interested because let's see let's see what he does um but yes actually when you talk about like the mass DNA collection I think the the, the main issue that the internet international media like raises is that like the DNA has been collected on Mars like like the numbers have risen and then um and then yes, as you said, like back in like 2015 or 16, when I was uh, when I was an intern at the at the Department of uh, Information and International Relations in CTA, we actually had a research done uh, regarding like the social credit system in Tibet, how like how like Tibetans would be placed under like uh, certain certain stratus of like status, so that if they have like uh, records of like descent or anything. Their credit score would be low, their their loan application would be denied. They wouldn't get like a, um, they wouldn't be uh, able to get a ride in taxis or or even have a hotel to sleep in. So uh, yes, um, particularly uh, when you look into um, things in that perspective, yes.
0: Definitely. It's very sad to see the condition in that. And we must be the voices to them, you know, like, and now, I think I would like to ask you, like you mentioned previously when we were talking about how uh, you <clears throat> interacted and met with Chinese students while you were studying abroad. Uh, what were your thoughts while engaging with them? And did the conversation or engagement with them bring you any clarity on Tibet? Well, I didn't.
1: Uh, well, when I first talked with Chinese, they were they were friendly and they were really smart. Like they know what they taught. They know what they were talking about. I mean, their command over the Chinese history or even like, uh, or even basic things were really good. So I was expecting a little bit more like clarity on Tibet, but I didn't get it because um, what they were taught was that um, Tibet was a landlord country uh, uh, where serfdom was rife and, uh, and then when you talk more about like the oppression and everything, I think the Chinese are oblivious because uh, because for one thing, uh, the Chinese Communist Party's uh, propaganda machine has been quite good. I mean, you see them, uh, you see them and then uh, and then the Chinese student who comes to uh, like certain places like the United Kingdom or or even the United States, like they are elite, you know, I mean, they didn't have to go through the struggles of like normal day Chinese, I think. Uh, but I have nothing bad to say about them because, I mean, they listened to me. They listened to the problems that I shared and uh, they had some good thoughts, like uh, like how how to tackle those things. Like once they asked me a question that said, um, do you think um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama is a part of the solution to take Tibet forward? And uh and yes, that thought provoked me, like to see like how would we do without his holiness. So I mean talking with the Chinese doesn't give you that much clarity on Tibet, but it certainly gives you something to think about, like, like because um because we have been raised with only like a few perspectives, and having more perspectives would definitely help us, like trying to pave a future, like where uh where we could live peacefully with Chinese, I hope.
0: That was a very interesting uh, anecdote that you shared when interacting with Chinese students. And yes, I think with Tibetans, not only Tibetans, but people who want to know about China, should at least interact with them, get to know what they are thinking. And you also mentioned the, you know, juggernaut, the U United Front Work Development, the propaganda machine. You know, like I was. Uh, <laughs> Witness to it, like recently, not recently, I think a few weeks back when Nancy Pelosi, the speaker, visited Taiwan. There was this whole ruckus about this one China policy. You know, the Twitter account of the official Ministry of Foreign Affairs of China posted how, you know, a certain number of countries are supporting the one China policy. What yes. is this? Like? This sort of machine is very, you know, well efficient. I think we should, we, we are, we should laud that. You know, and we can also learn from that. True, the, the
1: China of the future, I think, uh, would be so aggressive, like, because any blemishes to their sovereignty is, uh, is taken really seriously. Like, like, when you see those, like, when you, when you see, like, um, when you see, like, America criticizing, like, China's foreign policy, uh, I mean, America doesn't criticize that much, but when you see, like, um, when you see, like, people supporting, like, Taiwan, like, uh, like the Speaker, or even like the senators or uh, representatives china's swift response and uh, i think the i think the time for like china to like i think the i think the best solution i think for like um, china i think the best solution i mean i mean the best solution for china's like um, China's rise as a superpower in, like, the uh, Asian subcontinent would be the rise of India, because I think India is a better representative government than China. And if you're able to facilitate that, like, if you're able to facilitate the rise of India as a a power in the Asian subcontinent, which provides, like, uh, which provides, um, which is not autocratic, which is not... um, i think that i think that should be a good solution
0: definitely that is an interesting part about india you know we live in india and we sort of forget the vastness the incredible india should i say so yeah definitely we must raise india to its wanted pedestal and, yes, I, and
1: I don't think india would be that forceful because india um, I mean, India does have its own issues with Kashmir and everything. But then uh, when you talk about like, uh, when you talk about like abuses, I think uh, China is on another level, like, as you said, like the DNA collection, and then also like the assimilation process. And also like when you see um, the migration crisis, which is like uh, in Tibet, like when you see like cities, like Tibetan cities where the Chinese population is almost catching up with the Tibetan living there. I mean, that creates a problem in itself because now you see two, two competent cultures competing with itself. And uh, I think um, that's a big problem to the Tibetan culture in itself. So um, those kind of things, I don't think, I don't see it, in, I don't see it happening in India. So, um, I mean, I think India is a better alternative as a power in the Asian subcontinent. And I think India is a better representative government so i think it it, it certainly does um represent the will of the people
0: definitely Tile. i second you on that thought and now moving on like uh being an individual right to yourself who has volunteered for the office of tibet in washington dc firstly what were your experiences there and like you also have been to the united kingdom or wales like so <coughs> were there any- differences that you found in UK and USA when it comes to
1: supporting Tibet? I don't, um, let me, uh, let me answer the second question first because I think it's short. Because I don't see much difference when it comes to support, uh, for, um, support for, support for Tibet from, um, from, uh, the UK or the United States. I, I think it's because of my environments, uh, and I'm sorry, because, uh, it's that my, most of my, uh, most of the time my environments are like international students. So I think they are well educated and even though they are not educated about it, but they like to listen and then they like to like research on their own. So uh, that helps in a bit. So um, that's why I'm saying that like there is no difference to me. There might be some difference to other people, like to other individuals. I don't know about that. Uh, let me get on the first question itself. So, yes, I did volunteer as an intern um, back in 2008, 2017, I think. Uh, as uh, in the office of Tibet. Um, back then, I think it was um, Gong Peh the current CEO, who was the ambassador. And uh, we, had, uh, we had I think four or five staffs. And then uh, I had another intern intern with me. And uh, it was quite hectic because um, during those three months, uh, a lot was happening. A lot happened to me. Um, first of all, I think uh, it was the it was the time when uh, the Republican administration of the of President Trump decided to cut foreign aid to Tibet. It created quite a ruckus uh, around the office, and since we were short staffed, I think uh, ICT and all those institu- all those um, all those um, all those groups who helped Tibet like came to the front and um, and then they solved the problems quite nicely. And then we had the visit of His Holiness the Dalai Lama to UC San I think it was UC San Diego or UC Davis. And it was quite a problem because uh, I think the Chinese students were protesting that uh, he shouldn't be the one that's, that's speaking at their graduation, something that uh, it's created a lot of problems. And uh, yes, so uh, so because of that problem, Kungo uh, and, Pembela uh, and, uh, and I think it was Kungo uh, Tesla who was the Chinese liaison, Uh, they went to California to aid uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama's uh, entourage. And uh, so we had only like two or three people in the office. So we had to like maintain the logistics and everything. Uh, It was quite uncomfortable for me first because I've never been like uh, that much. uh, I've never been put under that much pressure to perform. But um, I think when you're put, when you're uncomfortable, that's when you learn the most, like um, in terms of experience and in terms of like, uh, uh, in terms of like, uh, living up to the expectations that they set you up. Um, it was quite a nice experience. So, And then finally, I think it was the visit of the Kamapa, the 17th Kamapa, um, uh, His Holiness the Kamapa, which uh And uh, it was quite good. I was quite fortunate to visit him. Uh, I mean, I was quite fortunate to meet him. And uh, uh, yeah, basically, it was quite a experience.
0: So, Tilly, something that you mentioned uh, that caught my attention was how, you know, like in 2015, the Republican administration under the former president of America, Donald Trump, cut the foreign aid fund for Tibet. But it was his very own admin- administration that pushed for the Tibet policy act of 2020 and right now even though we are under the joe biden administration senators who were elected during that period are pushing for the bill of promoting a resolution for the tibet china conflict so what is your view on that well
1: um well the administration of um president did cut the foreign aid of Tibet, but it wasn't that specific. I think it was a major cut, like they wanted to cut something and the foreign aid seems to be like the most popular one because let's face it, like uh, no taxpayer wants their tax dollars given to like, um, given to causes that they don't have any knowledge about. But then, um, yes, the Trump administration did um, under the leadership of Representative McGovern, uh, Senator Rubio, I think uh, it was also Senator Lee uh, who spearheaded the effort to have, like, the Tibet Policy Act, like, um, uh, uh, signed by President Trump. Uh, my thought is that, uh, uh, despite the administration change or anything like that, Tibet remains uh, a poignant issue for the United States, because um, the United States has certain interests in it, because um, because if you push forward, like if we have like human rights, if we have like the safeguarding of human rights in Tibet, it generally means that China is opening up and it means the successful implementation of US policy. Because then uh, because then it would China wouldn't be as much of a threat to the United States as it is now. So um, it all depends on national interests. So I think the United States is acting on their national interests, much so more than I think the aspect of humanity and everything.
0: Okay, Chitala. So finally, I would like to ask you or request you whether you <clears throat> have any messages to our Tibetan sisters and brothers, and also to those individuals and organization who con- constantly stand by us Tibetans.
1: I do. Um, the message I always like feel inside my heart is of, is that of gratitude, even to the Tibetans who work tirelessly for our freedom, even without like the tiniest bit of recognition or or any kind of like space uh, to talk about it. Um, it's of gratitude and also to those who are not Tibetans who are working tirelessly for Tibetans. I've seen that in um, in, uh, in Washington DC when people who are American or even internationals who are working in ICT, they work tirelessly and it inspires me a lot. And um, so what it does is that it they create a social movement which 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 directly influences what we do. Like they create a social movement that influences the Tibetan government. And also like they create something something to fight for. Like let's say like during the let's say during the during the Olympics or something like that. They created a movement so that I mean, it doesn't, uh, I mean, even though they said, boycott the Olympics, it, it wouldn't happen, but it created a sense that, that there's something to fight for. Like there are Tibetans who are willing to like go, they're willing to like push forward with their messages. So it inspires me a lot. And I hope that uh, it inspires a lot of people. And I, and I only have like my thanks to give to them.
0: So thank you, chilela for being our guest today. You make it very clear of the changing dynamics Occurring in the Chinese communist regime. And from this, I firmly believe we Tibetans simply must now not be observers or narrators, but rather catalysts for warranted change to bring a sustained and needful resolution regarding Tibet's occupation by China. Thank you.
1: Yes, thank you so much, Namdullah. It was quite good to talk to you.
0: Thank you.